inquire all those questions you've always wanted to know. Ask Katie anything. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Ask Katie Anything. I am your host, licensed marriage and family therapist, Katie Morton, and today's theme is PTSD, trauma, all of that stuff. Now, if any of you are new to the podcast, welcome. I ask for the questions on Sundays over on the community tab of my podcast channel. So if you just went over to YouTube and put in Ask Katie Anything podcast, it will come up or you can go to youtube.com forward slash opinions that don't matter. That's the podcast I have with my husband, Sean, and that's where all of our podcast videos live. And on the community tab on Sundays. I'm varying the time that I ask for the questions because everybody's in a different time zone. Um, So hopefully it works for you. And without for, oh, also um, really quick before we jump into them, we are now going to do these themed type podcasts once a month. And then the other three podcasts each month will be just varied questions that I think that got like 57% of the vote. And so if you didn't know on the community tab, I polled you guys to let me know what you would prefer and most of you said that you liked it this way. So we're going to do it this way for a while. We can always change it. I'm open to your feedback. I try to listen as much as possible. So let me know if you would prefer it to be another way. Without further ado, let's get into the first question. This question says, hi, Katie, what are some healthy things to do immediately after a traumatic event occurs, hours after, days after, to process the memory and prevent symptoms of PTSD? And I thought this was a great question. There's some, there are two add-ons to it. Um, One of the add-ons says, what are some things that you can do when you get re-traumatized? I'm always just told to do self-care, but that doesn't help. And the final add-on said, great question. Basically, is there something like a mental health first aid protocol? All great questions. Now, immediately following a traumatic event, it's actually best for us to talk through it as much as we can. And I know for a lot of people, you're like, but it's like overwhelming in the moment. And like, I don't even know if I'm remembering it correctly. It actually doesn't matter. It's in the consistent or, I don't know, drawn out free state when we kind of just feel overwhelmed. We don't know what to say or do. So we do nothing. It's in that free state that we find PTSD gets worse. And in the kind of stuffing down and ignoring the trauma where our symptoms start to build. And so the first aid protocol or the mental health go-to when a trauma happens in the hours or days after is we want to talk it through. I actually find, and this is in my experience, I'd love to hear yours, I actually find my patients who've been involved in an event where they had to talk to, say, you know, fireman, police officer, or even maybe a therapist right away, right? Like if you were involved in something that had some kind of legal ramification, there's oftentimes a lot of like first responders there to talk with us. Now, the people who had to do that talking were almost like forced to or had to relay what they saw or did or things like that. It was actually better for them longer term versus the people who didn't have to do that. And that, again, that's been my experience with my patients. Um, And so that's really what we go to as far as other colleagues of mine and myself and the research I did for my book, Traumatized, talking it out as soon as possible is best. And I've even heard from some of you who are already doing trauma work and then unfortunately were involved in another traumatic experience. You said that because you were already in trauma therapy to talk it out right away, nipped it in the bud, essentially didn't turn into, because an important component of all of this is to know that we can be traumatized and not develop PTSD. 
Just being traumatized does not mean we're going to have PTSD. PTSD is a mental illness born out of trauma that goes untreated. So therefore, if we're able to talk it out and process it through quickly, we could potentially you know, not develop it, like circumvent the PTSD diagnosis because we worked through it as, you know, as quickly as we could. And again, there's no rush on this. I'm not saying you have to work through it right away. I'm just saying that, you know, working on it quickly after a trauma means that we, the symptoms at the very least would be lesser than they would if we didn't. Um, And then someone else in the comments had a great a resource or a great example of what their therapist told them to do along with talking it out. They told them to watch some uh, kind of like mindless television before they go to bed so that the trauma flashbacks that come in the form of nightmares don't haunt them at night and they can sleep better and don't want the trauma to be the last thing in their brain, right? Don't want this event to keep you know, showing up in your nightmares. And I thought that was a good, a good idea. I think there's a place for processing each and every day. And there also needs to be a place for distractions. Distractions are coping skills, but they don't help us move forward. They just help us like not deal with it all the time because we can't process through something a hundred percent of our day, right? That's exhausting. And so we're going to need some of those healthy distractions. Healthy distractions are things like watching a mindless TV show, uh, organizing a part of our home, playing with our pet. Uh, Roxy's asleep here on the floor, snoring away. Um, I don't know, doing our laundry, calling a friend, um, painting our nails, going for a walk. There can be a lot of different things we can do that distract us from what's going on. And I think there's a place for both process-based and distraction-based things in our days when we're doing this work. Um, And I think that that's a great resource to watch something that's more lighthearted before bed so that our brain doesn't automatically go to that memory. Um, And then, okay, the question about what are some things you can do when you get re-traumatized? It's actually the same protocol. I know that that can sound very simplistic and you're like, but re-traumatization can feel different. When it comes to trauma, period, if it's re-traumatized, if it's complex PTSD, if it's childhood trauma, adult trauma, it doesn't really matter. It might matter when it comes to your specific therapeutic process, like what you need and what kind of treatment works best for you and the work that your therapist will do with you can differ. But overall, talking it out quickly, even if we're re-traumatized, talking it out quickly. Also, if we were re-traumatized by something that our therapist did or someone in our life did, it's important to tell them that that happened and explain why or like what it was and ask that they don't do that again. We have to let people know, right? We can't expect them to know already. We can't expect them to read our minds. We're going to have to express to them that that was hurtful and, you know, we don't want, we don't want them doing it anymore. Wow. She's really snoring along here. I hope you can hear her because it's hilarious. She's really dreaming. Her feet are going and everything. <laughs> okay. Let's move on to question number two. My question says, hi, Katie. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Do you have any advice on how to deal with anger and doubting your own emotions as a result of childhood abuse and gaslighting? It's a great question. I grew up walking on eggshells around my sister who was very impulsive and mean. And I was, and also was emotionally, oh, I was also emotionally abused by my grandmother. I held deep in myself all anger and hurt as my emotions were always dismissed. I've always heard that I'm overreacting or I'm too sensitive. Oh, I hate that. Or worse, that I'm imagining all of this or that I'm lying. As a result, I have difficulty expressing anger in a healthy way. I take it inwards, ignore, but it comes back so strong that I explode. I used to think that I'm experiencing panic attacks. That's how intense my repressed anger is. I have trouble talking um, my anger and hurt through, and I'm very easily gaslighted. And then it hurts even more because I'm the one apologizing, and I feel like I let myself down all over again. I'm so sorry. I feel so lost. What can I do to help myself with anger expression? So I stop people taking advantage of me. Thank you for everything you do. I love your podcast. It's been a great resource to me. I'm so glad. This is a great question. And I think this is one that, I mean, even I personally relate to. Anger was always like a scary emotion. It felt very out of control and very hurtful. And I hated it. And so I would ignore it. Also, my family, just not that you guys need to know a lot about me, but my family never really fought a lot or expressed anger at all. And so to me, it wasn't that, the anger was everywhere. So I like avoided it. It was that I didn't even know what it was. Like nobody ever fought in front of me. Not that parents should like fight in front of their kids, but there should be like, you know, healthy discussion and people can get angry and parents should discuss like, you know, I got angry and, and anger is okay. Sometimes, you know, it, it tells me something, you know, we should have those conversations with our children to help them build emotional intelligence. I didn't have any of those. So I essentially never knew what anger, what healthy anger looked like. Um, and so, okay into this question. How do I deal with anger and doubting emotions as a result of childhood abuse and gaslighting? Now, a lot of this is going to be done in therapy and we're going to have to talk it out and like role play some things out with our therapist. Now, we're going to need, first of all, tell your therapist everything you've just told me because there's going to need to be a lot of validation and push back against your urge to minimize and invalidate because you just said you've always been told you overreact you're too sensitive it's going to be hard for you to trust your emotions like you said you doubt them so it's gonna be really hard for you to trust them because you've always been told that they're too much and not okay and we're going to need our therapist to show us that it is okay and allow us to express them in session and that's where the role playing could come in i know it sounds kind of woo woo it can feel a little woo woo but trust me when I tell you it's easier to act it out in session first before we take it out into the world. Um, that can be even harder and even potentially, you know, more difficult for us because of defense mechanisms and, you know, our childhood abuse and gaslighting, right? So I just want to put that out there first. But when it comes to anger expression, I find as as a recovering people pleaser and an anger in person didn't know how to express anger, I would explode in like really inopportune times in my life because I didn't express anger little by little throughout my life. I just like hold it in till I couldn't hold it in anymore. 
the best way for me to get it out first was to write it out. And I used to write these letters like really rough with like pen on the paper. I, I didn't find typing to be as effective personally. If you prefer to type, you type away. I don't know. I found something about like pushing a pen into paper. Sometimes they even rip the paper when I was writing and I would write all, you know, you son of a bitch is so, I would just get really angry and I would write out everything I was pissed about, everything that like really made me mad, things people had done that hurt my feelings. And I learned through that. First of all, it felt really cathartic for, for me to get it out. And then I would tear up those things because I don't need to return to the anger. I think sometimes I would return to that anger as a way to like continue hurting myself because then I'd feel bad about what I'd said or I, I'd like uh, kind of stew in it, which didn't make me feel any better. Um, but getting out what was going on with me and how I felt I thought was helpful to me. So writing was a very passive way of getting that anger out. And then what I learned through that process, and you might want to keep your writings if if you need to return to them, but through that process of just writing them out, I learned that my anger usually was the secondary emotion because anger is a secondary emotion, meaning it shows up after another emotion is already there to protect us. It's puffer fishing, essentially. Now, my anger always came to my aid when I felt vulnerable. Now, it wasn't that I felt hurt. It wasn't that, I mean, sometimes it was, but most of the time it was just that I felt vulnerable, meaning I felt like um, I was taking a risk and I was uncomfortable and I didn't know how someone was going to react and it could have gone poorly and I'd put myself out there, you know? And it, when, in those, when I was in those situations, then I would feel angry, angry at myself, angry at the person if they didn't react in the way that I had hoped, you know, all of that stuff. And then, like I said, sometimes it was because someone had hurt my feelings. I'd done something to me that I didn't like, said something that hurt you know, it was really painful to hear, whatever. And that for some reason was so eye-opening to me because then I was able to see my anger for what it was, which was my protector. Now, everybody's going to be different, but anger, I always believe kind of fills that role of protector. And I'd be interested in how, how you think about it. What are some of the situations anger has come to your aid? Because instead of fighting against our anger, we have to find a way to acknowledge it and accept it and then be grateful for it because anger tells us something, right? I've talked about this, I think last week, I even talked about, you know, those like little uh, red flags that can pop up. And a lot of times we think of those terms as like bad, right? Overreacting, um, uh, being too sensitive, like all these words that were like, quote unquote, bad words, but they're actually really incredibly helpful in therapy and in our own personal growth, because those are just indicators, those red flags that something bigger is going on, right? If I'm really angry and I'm like exploding and my anger really is an overreaction for the situation at hand right now, that tells me that I've been storing this for a while. And then I'm like, wait, where is this coming from, right? So I could really go down a rabbit hole here, but what all in all, what I'm trying to say is I want you to be curious about your anger. I want you to get to know it instead of running away from it, pretending it doesn't exist, thinking that it's bad. Every time you find yourself getting in that thought process where you're like, God, that really pissed me off. And you're like, why am I such a horrible person? I shouldn't be so pissed at that. When we start doing that, like essentially what I call like invalidation, minimization of our feelings, but it's like when we shit talk our anger, I want you to just say, hey, 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 let's stop. Katie says anger's interesting. It's helpful. Let's learn about it. Okay. Again, we don't have to turn it into a positive. We don't have to say, I love my anger. That's not the goal here. The goal here is just to understand it. When does it show up for us? When is it so intense that we 
can't hold it back. And also for me, a helpful key was like, why am I holding it back? And the reason that I was holding it back is because I was raised in a a Christian home. I was raised in kind of a, like a small town, maybe more traditional, I don't know, space. And so anger expressed from a woman and maybe even men too. I don't even know if it was specific to girls or women, but it was like, I shouldn't get angry. Like anger was an ugly thing. There was that kind of belief system in my head as well. Um, So be curious about why you were stuffing it. And also, like I said, too, in therapy, I learned that like I never saw anger in my family. So I didn't really know. So it was a very foreign thing, which foreign can be scary, right? And so anyways, be curious about that because the more you can learn, then the goal of this, again, is not to love our anger and think it's wonderful, but it's to understand it because then after understanding it, we can come to a place where we can healthfully express it. Healthfully expressing it to me means upholding boundaries, communicating an upset when I'm when I'm simply upset. I'm not enraged, right? That's the difference because I understand it. I can feel it earlier on. It could be helpful while you're being a detective to consider how anger feels for you. Like for me, I find myself like clenching my teeth and my fist. I'm very tense and very irritable. And like, I kind of want to isolate because I don't want to get angry. Anger is overwhelming. I don't know how it looks. I don't want to be a bad person. So I don't want to be around people because they could push me to show my anger. And so I noticed those symptoms earlier on. And then I'm more, I'm, I'm not perfect and I don't do it all the time, but I am quicker to say that hurt my feelings or, hey, I didn't like that. Or can we talk about this more? I'm, I find myself upset about it, right? And having being able to have those conversations and it may take you a minute. You may have to step away till you can kind of get yourself to a place where you can have conversations. And it took me a while too. Like Sean can attest to the fact that I used to get angry easily and like for, for what I'm sure he thought was no reason because it didn't make sense at the time. Um, but anyway, Those are just some of the key points along the way as we kind of get to know our anger and accept our anger. And then the doubting of emotions, like I said, due to the gaslighting and um, childhood abuse, that's going to come like work in therapy and noticing those thoughts. When we start shit talking ourselves and trying to minimize or invalidate an experience, I want you to start to just pay attention. Notice when that's happening. And again, going back to some things I've talked about over the years is like bridge statements and using some more neutral statements to negate that like, this isn't right. I don't have any right to feel this way. I'm being too sensitive. I'm overreacting. This isn't that big of a deal, blah, 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 blah. Whatever kind of spiral we get caught in, I want you to start to notice it as early on as you can when you're having those thoughts about it, when you're doubting yourself and your emotions. And instead of thinking you have to accept them, that might be the long-term goal. For right now, my goal for you would be more to get to a place where you're like, yes, I'm having this and and I'm open to the possibility that it has a reason. It's here. It has a purpose, right? Emotions don't just come out of nowhere. Um, and that would be kind of my goal, kind of in that middle space where we don't have to love it, but I don't want you fighting it either. Now, there was a comment on this that said, as an add-on, how do clients learn how to feel their emotions? My therapist gave me the feelings wheel techniques and other methods, but I still can't imagine having to sit with emotions because it's easier to repress them and operate without them. And in regards to trauma therapy, this makes it harder because I just have to freeze. I have a freeze response and can't even respond to specific questions around my trauma. Sometimes I dissociate and other times I can't even physically talk, even though I am present in the room. What is a better way to manage emotions if they can't even be managed through therapy? 
easier way, look in the past and consider those emotions. Current emotions can be overwhelming, especially if we're super uh, sensitive because we're working on our trauma. When we're doing trauma work, we can feel very reactive already. And so our, our defense mechanisms are on high alert and we are just stuffing things down as fast as they pop up because it can feel like we've opened Pandora's box and it's overwhelming. So be compassionate with yourself. You're doing the best you can. Sometimes it's helpful to look back yesterday, might need more distance, maybe last week, maybe last year, maybe five years ago, a time when we felt like we kind of exploded or we can identify that we had an emotional reaction. doesn't matter what it is. You might not even know what it is. Can we identify that time? And can we use the feelings wheel to identify a couple of the feelings that might've been going on at that point? And then I'd like you to describe them to yourself or to your therapist or to both how it felt in your body. Like I talk about anger, like clenching my teeth and my fists and my muscles and just feeling very tense. How did that emotion feel for you? Whatever it is that you thought you experienced. Was it uh, exhaustion? Was it like excitement? Was it nervousness where like your palms were sweaty? You felt like your heart was racing. Like, tell me about it. And it <clears throat> we'll start in those past experiences and we'll try to slowly move closer You don't have to right away get to today in acknowledgement of our emotions. That might take a while, but that's okay. We're still learning about ourselves and our emotional experience. And I find that putting that kind of distance or separation between it can allow us to dig in a little bit more so that we don't feel so disconnected and want to dysregulate it, want to dissociate, things like that. Um, Because I feel like it's just too close to you right now. And that's okay. We're going to take our time. We'll try it that way and see how it goes. And let your therapist know that you can't do this right now. Say it's too much. So can I do some emotions, you know, from a few weeks ago so I can learn about it that way? Let them know because it's okay for it to be too much. Everyone's trauma experience and trauma healing process is going to be different. And that's okay. Here's another comment on this said, yes, this, how do you express anger in a healthy way? I find I'm angry all the time and so badly just want to punch something, but I keep it all in so as to not hurt others. And then we end up hurting ourselves, right? I was always taught as a kid when angry, oh, to calm down. I was overreacting or being disrespectful. So I learned to hide my anger. Just like I talked about um, getting in touch with it, being curious about it. When it comes to expressing it, the writing was helpful for me, Um, starting off with people that we're really close to, maybe writing some things out that we want to say to someone and role playing it with our therapist. Just like I talked about earlier, those are all healthy ways to kind of tiptoe into the anger realm without feeling like it's just going to run us over and hurt other people or we put it inside and hurt ourselves. Okay. Now there was a final add on. It said, is it really anger or is that a secondary emotion? It's always a secondary emotion. My therapist believes that there are other emotions that are bringing on the anger, but that is the only one that I can recognize. So as part of dealing with anger, digging deeper to find out that primary emotion, yes, but you don't have to do it right away. Like I said, writing was really helpful for me because I found that anger kept showing up in these certain situations. And when I was able to tap into those situations, again, these were past, right? It was easier for me because there was distance. It already had happened. Um, But I could dig back in there and I could say, oh, it was because I felt threatened, because I felt hurt, because I felt um, any number of things, right? You have to see, again, the past might be easier, but the goal is to understand our anger and when it shows up because that tells us 
the, the primary emotion is actually what's important. The anger is just like this red flag that we it it's easier to identify because it's it can be big and it can be loud. Whereas the real underlying primary emotion might be something like I felt uh, discouraged, you know, and that doesn't that's not as loud. We might not notice that emotion as quickly, and it might be really hard for us to identify it. But anger, ooh, we feel it. We can identify it. And so just being curious, getting to know your anger will lead you to that primary emotion. And there's usually a few of them that are, it's kind of like, again, like a pattern. So look for those patterns and take your time with it. And again, I think the historical experiences will be easier to dig into deeper without being triggered, overwhelmed, or wanting to dissociate. Okay, let's move on to question number three. Question number three says, hey, Katie, I hope this isn't off topic. It's not. Is it normal to feel very anxious about sexual intimacy if nothing bad ever happened to you? Ever since I was a child, five years old, I was very sexual. My earliest memory of sexuality and masturbation is me being alone in my room and role playing that someone would tie me down and hold me in place while tickling me down there. I always had such weird fantasies or daydreams of someone torturing me, even in a non-sexual way. I was never sexually abused, but I am so ashamed and feel that this is not normal. Now that I'm older, I'm very scared of intimacy and I panic when even thinking about someone touching me in a sexual way. And I'm very anxious when talking to my therapist about intimacy, which could all be due to social anxiety, which I have been diagnosed with maybe. I still feel sexual attraction, mostly towards older men, and like the idea of them seeing me as an innocent young girl. I feel so different and alone with this, and I don't know why I am this way. Please help and thank you so much for all you've done so far. Of course. And there's some comments on top of this. I think there's like just one comment. Um, Now, masturbation as a child and uh, curiosity of children, you know, showing you, showing each other private parts and things like that. That's all normal. It's a normal part of development because children do have hormones and we are developing and things feel good and we're curious and there's nothing wrong with that. I don't want anybody to feel that, you know, that that means something that they're broken or have any shame about that. However, when it gets in the way of us functioning, right, then it's a problem. It doesn't mean something's wrong with us. It means that something's going on that we don't like. And it's like a ego dystonic, we would call it when it like goes against Uh, who we feel we are and it doesn't feel good we don't like it and it sounds like this is bothersome to you you don't like this and these fantasies and you're like what the hell where did these come from right and I have to be honest if you hadn't said that you were not sexually abused I would have gone there and I might even just be curious about this like what even if nothing bad happened to you personally I've had patients in the past have situations or experiences like this due to watching pornography at a young age and being exposed to pornography in one way or another um whether it was through they had one of my patients had like an older sibling that was very into at the time it was like vhs tapes you know hey pornhub wasn't around back then um and you know uh nudie magazines and things like that and being exposed to that really young uh, definitely changed the way that he interacted with his own sexuality masturbation intimacy, things like that. And so I'd be curious about it. Again, there doesn't have to be this like deep, dark, really bad thing that happened to us. I'm just curious when you first were exposed to sexualized content in a movie, on TV, pornography, uh, magazines, things like that. Um, Do you remember any of that? And I'm just being curious again, because I wonder where this is coming from. Now, 
it's interesting that you said now that you're older, you're very scared of intimacy. It sounds like there's a lot of judgment and shame built into the way that you used to want to interact as a kid and the things that you would do. And so now you feel like it's all off limits and it's all bad. And there might be some journaling or some chatting with your therapist about like your beliefs about sex and intimacy and like what you think, what you think about it. What are the judgments or the beliefs? Because and when I say judgments and beliefs, I mean, there are beliefs about sex as a whole. Like if you were to still enjoy stuff like a kid, like you wanted, like, let's say you, you know, had a very active sex life and you had a partner and you were like, I want you to tie me up and you let them know and they were doing these things and you were enjoying it. What would that say about you? What do you think that means? What's the belief about that? Or for other people who do it, maybe it's not just you personally, maybe it's everybody who engages in that. What do you think about that? Let's write about that. Think about that. Talk about that. And then also, what does that say about us? You know, do you think that that means something's wrong with you? Or is there only one way to have a healthy sex life? I'm just curious. And I'm also curious, like, if anybody in your life ever had a conversation with you about sex and consent and uh, safe sex and maturity, you know, like, I remember we had like sex ed at a bunch of times throughout my childhood. I was fortunate enough to live in an area that had sex ed as part of the public school system. But we had like the first talk, which was about like, we're in deodorant and your body's changing and tampons and blah, blah. And then the next one was more about like STDs, safe sex, consent, stuff like that. And then we had, I think, one more about like, I think it was just another safe sex type thing. But, you know, what what's your history? What have you experienced? What have people talked to you about? Um, because it is normal to feel anxious about sexual intimacy if we don't have much experience or if the experience we've had hasn't been good, but that it's not, quote unquote, normal for that to last for very long, Right. It could be because you are already, because you said you've been diagnosed with uh, social anxiety. It could be part of that because intimacy with another person involves another person. It's a social activity, so to speak. And I could see that causing even more anxiety. Um, But yeah, we have to be curious. Where do you think it comes from? Because your real question is, is it normal to feel very anxious? If we have anxiety, yeah, it's normal to feel anxious about everything. If we have an anxiety disorder, it could be everywhere. But I'm curious if you're able with your therapist to tease out this versus your anxiety symptoms, because sometimes they're the same and sometimes they're different. And I feel like that will give you more information and allow you to better understand what's going on. But I am very interested in the like beliefs or assumptions or judgments that you make about sex and intimacy and what that says about you or other people. I think it's worth digging into that. I think a lot of us could benefit from digging into that because that we've been told a lot of messages throughout our lives about sex and we can judge ourselves better or worse because of that. And it's important to know where that's coming from because it can really make it hard for us to have a healthy, happy sex life later in life, you know? Um, And it also, I find it interesting, the older men thing, mostly being uh, attracted to older men and wanting to be an innocent young girl. Again, without judgment, what do we think that comes from? Why do why do we want to be innocent young girl? Do we want to be taken care of? Like was because maybe this is stemming from like some emotional neglect in our family where we never really felt cared for or like we could rely on anyone where our parents were really inconsistent and we could never we never knew if they were going to like show up for us. I don't know. Or, you know, do we think maybe something has happened and we've repressed it? It doesn't sound like that's the case because you're saying it's not, but those are just some questions that I have that I would encourage you to dig into and to 
to be non-judgmental, be curious like a detective about it so we can learn where this is coming from. And then there was a comment that says, hi, Katie, along that note, what would be attract, what would be, what about being, sorry, attracted to, um, to much older men at an early age? Now that I think of it, I was always doing similar behaviors when I was young. I was also convinced that I was going to marry Dennis Quaid. I don't recall any sexual abuse, but my parents were very protective because of my disability. Oh, okay. I also used to spin in circles all day long. I could easily dissociate or maladaptive daydream. My parents were divorced, but my dad was actively in my life. Could there be another explanation? Yes. Having helicopter parents, people don't realize that that's just as damaging because, and part of me wonders if you wanted a much older man because you you were always cared for and taken care of, but maybe not in the way that you needed. They were just super protective, but... N- I don't know. I'm just, I'm hypothesizing here. So just, you know, let me run through this. And if it's not correct, it's not correct. But I wonder if being protective of you because of your disability didn't allow you like emotional connection or feeling like you were treated as an actual human. You were more like a thing that needed to be protected. I've heard it from a lot of our community members that having a disability at a young age can kind of alter the relationship and we can be seen differently and that can make us see ourselves different and it can like mess with how we feel in relationships and i would i would wonder if maybe that feeling of like i can i can never take care of myself i always need other people to be there for me because they never allowed you to like test and and figure out that you could probably do more than they'd allow they helicoptered right you never got to have any kind of independence So the idea of having an older man that you're in a relationship with probably feels very safe. It probably feels um, like you're finally getting to be, you know, an adult and be treated as an adult. I think there's something tied up in the way that your parents treated you and your your desire for an older man. Um, Also, if they were very protective, you might not have been able to engage in relationships with kids your own age. And that can hinder our ability to see people our own age as potential partners. If we were mostly around adults, then that's the only people we tend to be able to relate to. Does this make sense? I hope this makes sense. Sometimes I think I get too in the like, I don't know, the weeds of therapeutic brain and how I think about things. But I think them being overprotective was a form of abuse. And I don't mean this as like your parents abused you, this is horrible. Abuse is abuse. And the fact that you never got to form your own independence. And I I don't know the level of your disability, but there's always a component of independence that is important, whether it's teaching you how to do certain things for yourself, if you're able, again, depending on your, your, you know, level of ability, but having you be able to do certain things on your own and letting you try, I think is really key. And the thing with parents is they have a tough time letting children fail or hurt themselves or, or fall, like have a hard time. But that's all important in our development, regardless of disability or not, right? We need to be able to challenge ourselves and try and fail because then we kind of learn our boundaries and our limitations and we feel like we know because we've tried it. It's different than someone telling us, which is kind of like goes back to that old adage of like, why can't you just learn from my mistakes? Uh, Because they're not mine. And so they're not real. And I know that this can be hard for parents and I know that parents want nothing bad to happen to their children. And I'm not saying we should let bad things happen. I'm just saying you should let your child try things. Like if they are, if they're wheelchair bound, can we try letting them push themselves out and get into bed on their own or getting themselves onto the toilet? Can we work on that? Can that be something that we let them try? Uh, can we put tape towels to the edges so they don't bonk 
anything and potentially hurt them. You know, what can we do to make it as safe as possible while still allowing them to get some form of independence? Anyways, um, the fact that you dissociate maladaptive daydream tells me that that was abusive and was harmful for you. And you've uh, definitely having some trauma responses there. Um, And so that could be why, again, like if we felt traumatized, having an older, a much older man could be a protective figure. But I guess you'd have to tell me, you'd have to be curious about like, what does an older man mean for you? Is it protective? Is it that we want to be taken care of? Or is it an old pattern because our parents always took care of us? So we want to make sure we have somebody else to take care of. Like, where do we think this is coming from? Be curious again, not judgmental. See what comes up for you. Um, I think that that's, I think the answer's in there somewhere. Okay, let's move on to question number four. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC. This question says, hi, Katie. I hope you're doing well. I am. Is it normal for me to hate my inner child who prevents me from doing inner child work? If yes, how can we proceed with the inner child work if that's the case? Thank you so much. This is a great question. Now, it's normal to hate our inner child. We can blame and shame them, uh, think that they deserved all the shit they got. Um, you know how I talked about we earlier how we can stuff that anger in? Trauma is anger in. The shame, the guilt, the embarrassment, all of that is anger inward because we don't have anywhere else to put it. We don't know what else to do with it. So we stuff it deep inside and we blame ourselves. And because it happened to us when we were whatever age, we blame that age of ourselves. And we're like, you went back. Like, I can't tell you how many of my patients and members of our community have told me, but I got abused and then I went back. Obviously, it's my fault. We think that a lot. In which case, I, I, you know, I listen. If you were my patient in my office, I listen. I understand. And then I ask some questions. Like, did you feel like you had an option between going and not? A lot of times we didn't. It was the babysitter. It was who was taking care of us or we had to go home. Where were we going to go? Um, did they scare you or make you think you couldn't tell someone? Or did, were you not, did you know what was happening? Because most of the time the answer is no. And it's not, we, I think logically we all know, well, I didn't do it. It's not my fault, but it's hard for us to believe that, right? We can know something logically and not believe it in our gut. And so asking ourselves some of those questions and, and being curious about that, what happened to us and why we're, why we hate instead of feeling like we have to love our inner child, we need to nurture him or her and we need to like talk to them and it needs to be okay. What if instead we just get curious about this hate that we feel and where it's coming from and what is it that we blame or shame them for? What what's what did this inner child do that we're so upset about? Let's be curious about that because in there is our answer and actually part of our healing process as we kind of untangle this trauma story that we've told ourselves, right? Because what, like I've said before in the past is like when we're children, we work really hard to make sense of our world. It's part of our development right? We're looking out to make sense of things, to put things into place, to be like, okay, so this is why this happens, right? Because everything, a lot of things are new. We don't understand how everything works. We're doing our best. We're like little sponges. And so when something doesn't make sense and there's no way we can 
look at it or change it to try to make it to make sense. We assume we must have done something to make that happen. Hmm, this doesn't make sense. So I must have, okay, so I did something that caused this, right? We always place ourselves because we understand ourselves the best. So when we're kids, we have a, a trauma story, something that has taken place and harmed us. Doesn't make sense. Why would someone who's supposed to love us and care for us harm us? Doesn't make sense. I must have done something to cause it, right? That's the story we tell. We've been telling ourselves a story for maybe maybe 20, 30 years. And so we hate that inner child. We're like, fuck you. You got us in trouble. Why'd you go back there? You made it happen again. It wouldn't be so bad if you hadn't done. We just have this story and this conversation for a long time. And that hate is built up. But the hate really isn't for that child. The hate is for what happened and the nonsense, the, the story that, that why would this happen? That why? We don't have an answer. It doesn't make any fucking sense. It just makes us angry and it makes us hurt. And why are we dealing with this now, right? And so instead of taking it out on our inner child, which is really ourselves, can we just dig into that hate? Consider where it came from. Have adult us ask little us some questions about it. And you can be ruthless. You say, why the fuck did you go back there? What the hell were you thinking? But then you have to speak honestly from child you, if you can tap into that. Child you probably said, I didn't know what else I could do. You know how mom was. Or where was I supposed to go? I had to go home. Remember, we tried to stay at our friend's house that long time, but mama came and got us. You know, I don't know the story, but you have to, if you're going to, dig into this. We're going to have to speak honestly to our inner child. Filled, We can be filled with rage. We can say whatever we want, but inner child of us gets to answer back honestly too. And I want you to really think about what was going on then and why that did take place from an adult perspective, because child you didn't have as many options as adult you had. And I think that's the difficulty with inner child work is because adult us is like, what the actual fuck was happening? Why did we do this? Why did we put up with that? It's hard to remember what it was like to be a child. Consider if you have children in your life now, just talk to them for a bit and you'll be reminded of, of their level of development and what they have control over in the vast amount of their life they don't have control over. Try to consider, you know, show yourself a little compassion. Child us just did not know what, what adult us knows and didn't have the power, the strength, the resources that we do now. Consider that, Okay. And yes, you can still do the inner child work, even if you hate your inner child. That's okay. I think the way you proceed is through acknowledgement of that hate and expression of that hate and having an honest conversation with your younger you. Okay. And there's a comment on this that sometimes I feel sorry for my inner child. And other times I hate that child that was so stupid and let others take advantage of me. It's uh, been wounded by my parents and bullies. I started working on my inner child with different therapists and I ended up getting nowhere because it's just too difficult to process all the things that happened to me. I don't want to cry in therapy, but the whole subject just makes me want to cry. And that's not okay with me. My mom taught me that. How can I work on my inner child without wanting to kill it? I'm so sorry for the unkind words. It's okay. We can have unkind words. Not all of our words have to be loving and wonderful. Life sucks sometimes, right? And again, I think we don't have to process all the things that happened, but I just want you to have a dialogue, right? When you feel like your inner child is stupid, can you say, what What the what were you thinking? Why were you being so stupid? Have that real conversation. Again, those conversations don't have to be loving. We don't have to write these letters. They're like, thank you so much for, for getting me through. Blah, blah. It doesn't have to be that way. It can be. For some of us, that is the healing process, the nurturing part. And we can jump right into that. But for a lot of us, we're going to fight. We're going to hate. 
We're going to be angry. And again, remember that hate, that anger, it's a secondary emotion. It's, it's out of coming out of pain. Something bad happened. We were hurt. We're trying to make sense of it. We don't know what to do. So we just hate anger's protective. It's protecting us from acknowledging just how helpless maybe we felt or how hurt we were that we went to someone for care and all we got was more pain, you know? Um, it's okay to cry also. Um, you might want to practice setting aside some time to cry, not in therapy, on your own, in private, maybe in the shower, um, somewhere where you feel like you can do it because it is actually a chemical release in your body and it can be both exhausting and relieving and wonderful at the same time. And then no one has to see it. So we're not necessarily pushing against that belief that our mom said it's bad to cry yet, but we'll want to push back at some point. Um, but yeah, so I think it's okay to want to kill your inner child. It's okay to have unkind words. Again, let's have these real conversations with our inner child, but we have to have a real conversation back. Now, there was a final add-on to this says, yes, I would love to hear this. I've been told to find compassion for my inner child, and I cannot bring myself to do that. That's okay. I have so much hate for her. I know she was helpless, but I still can't stop myself from feeling like she should have done something. How can you connect and feel compassion when all you feel is anger and hurt? It's okay to feel anger and hurt. I think, again, it's like going back to the beginning of this podcast where we're talking about like, uh, I think it was question number two about anger. How do we deal with our anger? We have to get to know it. We can't just ignore it. It sounds like we're kind of ignoring it. We're like ignoring the inner child work or not ignoring, but pushing back against getting defensive, shutting down because it feels overwhelming or it feels a little scary. So let's just be curious about that. And let's have these real conversations with our inner child. It doesn't have to be loving and compassionate yet. The goal is to get there. But for right now, we can hate and say shitty things and ask her, what the fuck were you thinking? Why'd you put us in that situation? Do you know the pain I'm still dealing with? Oh, well, say whatever you need to say. Get it out. What does younger you have to say to that? It's okay to have those difficult conversations. It's honestly kind of a, a fun role play to express some healthy anger and to feel that anger. I feel it in my throat, even as I pretended to get worked up, like reading through, I could feel it here. Where do you feel it when you get worked up? Notice that it's helpful, you know, it, and anger's protective. What's it protecting you from? Have those conversations. Inner child work, maybe, and I'm doing, I'm putting together a workshop and there is a component in there where I talk about how it can be so nasty and mean. I, I, I promise to keep talking about it this way because I think so often we think it's going to be this beautiful, loving conversation and it, it, it could be, but it might not be. And that's okay. Okay. Just keep talking, having real conversations. It will get better. Okay. Let's move on to question number five. Question number five says, Hey Katie, I have a trauma anniversary coming up soon. I'm starting to feel myself slide into a dark place of PTSD. I feel like my stomach is constantly turning and reminds me of what happened. It's been 10 years and I'm frustrated with myself for feeling this way. How can I stop letting a day in history, an hour in history, really create a whole annual trauma season for me? I'm not having a good time. The truth about anniversaries, trauma anniversaries is some people they affect deeply and some people they don't affect at all. And there's no judgment around how it affects you. Okay. But for this person, it's a deeply affecting thing. And what I would encourage you to do since we know when it is, is to plan ahead. I have tons of patients and members of our community who struggle just like you. And my advice is always the same. We have to set up a safety plan and a distraction plan. Now, only you know how how long of a tail you need. Now, as an example, I had a patient back in the day, um, and this you'll see how this relates. She wouldn't, 
she had a trauma anniversary, but it didn't cause her to slip into PTSD. It caused her to slip into mania. And we knew when it happened, it was usually like June, sometimes uh, it was like mid to late June. We, with the work of her psychiatrist, we would increase her medication during that time. I would see her extra during that period. And then we would, you know, we'd go out and we had this whole plan of things she would do at home, people she would connect with, distractions. Um, she wouldn't go anywhere. We'd make sure she was home because she used to try to take vacations and then it would end up just being terrible. Um, and so whatever we need to prepare ahead, let's do that. Does that mean we need a safety plan? Does that mean we need a distraction plan? Are there people in our lives we can like, set up times to hang out with them and see people. Can we set up more sessions with our therapist? What what can we do to get us through this period? And then once we're out of this, the time frame, because that's really all we can do is we can just manage through it. I know it sucks. It's just one of those things we have to get through. Can't go around it. Can't go under it. Can't go over it. We got to go through it. And we want to prepare so that it's it's lesser and lesser and lesser. So each year it affects us less and less. Okay. We can get you there. But after we get through this chunk, after the trauma anniversary is passed and we start to kind of feel more like ourselves, I want you to dig into why this is affecting you as much as it is. And be curious, not judgmental. Work with your therapist. What is it about that time that is so triggering? Why do we allow it to affect us like that? Are there other things that we could do? Do we feel like if we don't get upset about it and have like slip into our a dark place of PTSD that it didn't really happen? Does it feel invalidating in some way if we don't react or minimizing if we don't fall apart? Hmm. Be curious about your reaction because that tells us a lot. Again, remember, it's like these red flags. I'm reacting to this. Why? What, what happened? Why? It's not just the trauma anniversary. It's something about our belief about it and what it means each and every year as it passes. And I think there's some kind of something in there about validation and, you know, making sure we're not minimizing, or it could even be a part of us that thinks if we get over it, then we don't have any right to be upset anymore. We don't have any right to struggle and need therapy. What's the belief system? Where's this coming from? Because in there is actually our answer and our healing to get us out. But again, we don't have to do this right now. Right now, we just have to get through. We need to survive. We need to distract. We need support to push us through. Then let's be curious about it because I'm, sus- I, you know, I'm always suspicious about things like this. If it gets worse and worse, like what is it? Or if it just continues, what is it? Or what would it mean if we didn't do this? What would that say? Let's be curious about that and let me know what you find out. Now, there was a comment on this is how do we stop remembering things that happen to us on or around special dates such, such as birthdays? Now, we can dig into it just like I said. Um, I don't think we need to forget. I don't think the goal is ever just to forget. We can still remember things that happened. It's just all about the reaction. Like um, I have people in my family who always remember the day that my dad died. And I have to be honest, I'm not an I I'm fortunate, I guess, that the anniversary isn't what gets me. It'll just be random. But my aunt will reach out and text me and, and, you know, it's okay to remember. I don't think there's any harm in the remembering. The harm can come in the emotional upset it can stir up in us if it's impacting us every year for a chunk of time. And, you know, it's detrimental to our functioning, our mental health. That's when it's a problem. And again, going back to kind of what I said is, is digging into what it would mean if you, if you wouldn't react this way, or why do we think it's so triggering? Is there more work to do in therapy? 
there's a lot to unpack there. And it's okay, just be curious, not judgmental about your process and why this comes up for you and what it is about the dates that you find so triggering or so upsetting. And again, I'm always suspicious. I always think it has something to do with us either feeling like if we don't fall apart, then we don't have a right to feel bad otherwise, or that it would mean that it wasn't as big of a deal. Like, figure, But that might not be true for you. So you let me know. Is there something else in there? Leave it in the comments. Let's move on to question number six. And this says, hi, Katie. Is it possible to help yourself remember the details of a traumatic event that has been blocked from your memory? My dad died when I was five, and I've spent my whole life trying to piece together my memories from that night. I grew up being told that he died in a car accident, but recently I learned that he actually killed himself after believing he beat his girlfriend to death in front of me. Wow. I can't, um, I'm so sorry. I feel like I can't begin to process and work through this trauma until I know every detail of what happened, but I just can't seem to remember everything that five-year-old me saw. Also, if it's not possible to bring the memories back, how do I begin to process all this new information when it still feels like there's so many missing pieces? Thanks for everything you do. First of all, I'm so sorry you went through that. Man, unfortunately, it's around the age of five that we start to form long-term memories. We might have a couple from like when we were even younger and we're like, oh, I remember this one thing or one time or this little, uh, I don't know, almost like a, a couple of images, right? From when we were little. But it's not until around the age of five that we form long-term memories. So these memories may not exist for us. And I honestly, my thought about this when I read this question first off was like, there's going to be a lot of grieving, not only grieving for the loss of your dad, grieving for the loss of those memories and the fact that we don't, and it was such a traumatic event in our life and it has like forever shaped our life potentially, it it's okay to be angry. It's okay to be disappointed and frustrated and sad and all of those things. But I want you to know that you don't actually have to remember every detail in order to process it. And you might find a little bit more uh, efficacy in therapies like EMDR, where you talk through or they t- you try to take them back to that place since you have like these spotty bits. You said there's missing pieces, but there's probably something there. Can we take them back and process that through? That might be helpful since you don't, again, don't have to recall every detail. You can piece together things from things other people tell you, but again, it won't be from your perspective. And I don't know if that is important for you, but I know in the trauma therapy process, it's all about what you feel, what's important for you and how you, how much information you feel you need to work through it. Now, part of me wonders, and I'm just being curious here, part of me wonders if, if we think like, I guess I'm curious as to why you feel you need all of the memory. Is it for validation? Is it um, because we feel like if we can't remember, then it didn't happen? You know, like, again, that validation piece, like, wh- where is this coming from? And, and why do you feel I might dig into that in therapy, like being curious about why, why you feel the urge or the necessity to remember every little detail. There's always a lot of missing pieces. Trauma memories are complicated and they may or may not exist. And I think we're going to have to process through even that component of it. Um, But more importantly, I feel like the trauma therapy should focus on like how it's affecting you today and the ways that you respond to life or react to things or whatever um, and how we think it stems from that and digging into that. And so 
obviously we can have other people help us to remember details, but they're not going to be our memories. And there's, unfortunately, we, I don't know if they're going to exist for you. Going back there and talking through in the details that you do remember is the best way to pull that memory out because it's usually connected to things. There could be, you could use other senses, uh, tastes, scents, uh, I don't know, things like clothing, going back to a specific spot or a home or apartment that can trigger memories sometimes. So that might be something that you try. Um, and that could be a way to try to remember more. But again, you don't have to in order to to process it. And so I guess the question, how do you begin to process all this new information Start talking it out and being honest about how you feel about it. What's coming up for you? What is what do you, what are your thoughts? You were lied to, and that's why I think there'll be a lot of grieving and a lot of anger that comes out of this. Um, how do you express that? What are some ways that maybe communicate that to people, or do we write it down, or do we talk to our therapist about it? Um, that's really where we start. How it's affecting you now? What are you feeling about this now? Let's talk through that. Um, yeah, and again, I'm so sorry. Now, there was a comment on this says related to trauma memories. I'm currently undergoing prolonged exposure therapy. People call it PET, by the way. I wasn't bothered by a lack of memory. I didn't even think that there was much that I had forgotten until I started this therapy. Now, all the holes in my memory make me emotionally feel as though I sound less credible, even though I intellectually know that it doesn't matter how credible my story sounds or how other people feel about the story because it happened to me. And I know it really did happen. How do I emotionally reconcile that feeling of void in my story when I can't remember certain parts with the part of me that intellectually believes that it doesn't matter when I emotionally believe that it does? I can't intellectual, oh, and I can't intellectualize my way out of it. Ooh, yeah, intellectualization only gets us so far, right? And it doesn't get us very far in therapy, unfortunately. So many times we're like, I get it, I understand. But understanding doesn't mean we feel it right? And so part of you, I'd actually encourage you to dig into that, to to be curious about, I mean, I kind of have an answer here and I don't want to like answer it for you because your experience can be different. But my hypothesis is there's some somewhere in there, younger you who had this trauma occur is still thinking that they did something to cause it and that it's their fault and that it's not that big of a deal and that you know, they're making it into more than it is, you're overreacting, you're too sensitive, whatever, whatever messages you either told yourself through the shame, guilt, embarrassment, trauma cycle, or maybe from the person who traumatized you or someone else involved in it. We've heard these messages loud and clear from ourselves or from others or both, and we've internalized them. And so I want you to kind of be, I I think the inner child work is where this is actually going to be the most helpful. And again, like I talked about earlier, It can be a beautiful conversation. It can also be a kind of a nasty one. And I might encourage you to, instead of worrying about uh, accepting that you don't have all these memories or, or not accepting or whatever, how about instead we, we start having conversations with that younger us and like, why don't you fucking remember you have one job just to remember these things. And now there's these holes and now I, I don't even think this happened. I think you're making it into a bigger deal than it is. Right. You know, and we can go back and forth. I think that in that conversation, we can uncover a lot. We can learn about on probably why intellectualization is one of our go-tos. It's probably the way that we survived. Also, why we we struggle so much to 
to emotionally accept things. Like it's probably that disconnection is why we turned intellectualization. Again, it saved us, right? Emotions are too dangerous. Intellectualization to the rescue. Um, disconnection. Um, yeah, and we might learn a little compassion and understanding for ourselves as a whole little us and us now. And I think that that in turn will get us to the result where we can let go of the fact that there are going to be voids in our story and blips of memory that aren't there. But I think that it kind of, it's through that healing of that relationship and that conversation because it's tied up in the shame, guilt, embarrassment cycle in this this trauma response. That's why uh, we have the separations, right? The intellectualization has always come to our aid and then we're looking at it and we're like it's not doing the trick in this scenario because emotional us is too raw right and so we have to be able to have it's almost like adult us and child us right and we're going to have to kind of bind them back together get them talking help them understand each other does that make sense i hope so okay let's move on to question number seven this question says Hello, Katie. I have been diagnosed with CPTSD, otherwise known as complex PTSD, and PTSD, alongside with other mental illnesses. When I've been been in therapy, it's like my mind goes blank, and it's hard to connect to my emotions and even to memories. Is this considered dissociation? Can be. The reason that I'm unsure is because I know where I am and what I'm doing. I still feel present, but mentally, it's like I'm walking around a dere- in a derelict building with a huge corridor with a lot of rooms. This sounds like dissociation. The only thing is you open the door and there's nothing behind it. Or it's an empty room. You then check the door and it's exactly the same. And the cycle goes on. It's like metaphorically, I'm running around all these rooms wanting and needing something, but not being able to find it. I love that analogy. I, it's like, not even, I, I mean, it's an analogy, but it's like, it's so vivid and palpable right you can like feel it's tangible so good so i wanted to share that i thought this was a great question and we can dig into it a little bit but i just also (coughs) excuse me (coughs) always comes in twos it's also just a great visualization um i wonder if i'm gonna have allergies now that i'm in texas let's hope not okay never had them knock on wood okay um yes this is dissociation Everybody experiences it differently. That's why I love this like analogy because it's just, it's how um, my friend, I don't know if you guys remember, my friend Joanna talked about uh, her experience when she was like extremely overwhelmed. It was in burnout. She talked about it. It was a symptom of burnout. She talked about how she's walking down this corridor at work and she's like, I've been to this clinic like a million times and I knew exactly where I was going, but I like walk like miss the door i normally go in and like walk down a corridor and she was like where what where am i what's happened like she had no idea where she was going and i immediately thought of her story when you said this because when she was telling me that i was like that's dissociation like you're maxed out to the point where your brain pulled the ripcord and really the reason this is happening is it's just too much it's too overwhelming and so i would let your therapist know and i might try to circumvent this by either writing a letter and bringing it in or emailing your therapist or something so you can get it out before session so that we don't go boo already. Sometimes I find even trying to tell our therapist that it is too much and we are dissociating could be enough to make our brain pull the ripcord. But I am going to encourage you. Okay. So along with like trying to tell your therapist ahead of time, I want you before and after therapy to do full body shakes, shake like a dog. You know, we have to, we're going to reset that nervous system because we're feeling too cued up. That's why we're pulling the ripcord so quickly shake it out. And I want you to do things ahead of time to calm your system. Maybe it's like low stimulation. Maybe there's no music in the car on a drive, or maybe it's calming music. Maybe we don't talk to somebody or we talk to someone who's soothing. 
where whichever way it goes for you. I want you to do what's best for you. I want you to have some things that are that are somewhat soothing. Maybe just think of things that don't make you feel terrible because sometimes we can't think of positive things. So what doesn't make you feel terrible? Let's do those things as we build up to our session. Do a full body shake when we get out of the car. Make sure nobody's looking. Do a shake or go in the bathroom and do it and then go in and see if that helps because it's just too much for your nervous system. So we need to kind of take the edge off so we can at least get in there and start the process. Right now, it's just too much. We're overwhelmed immediately. So we're going to have to bring that down first and let your therapist know again, let them know it's been too much. You find yourself dissociated. You can even just put it in the way you put it to me. It's so beautiful. It's just a beautiful way of talking about it. Um, Yeah. And they'll be able to help. Okay. Let's move on to question number eight. This question says, hi, Katie, I hope you're doing well. My question is, can someone accidentally or on purpose, I guess, fake PTSD? I have been consistently diagnosed with PTSD for over 10 years. And despite constantly denying that I have trauma, I think people are assuming that I just forget the quote unquote event or something because I do have a terrible memory. But are there other things that can make it look like I have PTSD when I don't? I apparently dissociate a lot. And I panic if I see certain things like a type of car or hear a certain voice. And I have problems with basically everything in life. But how can these people be saying I have PTSD when there's no traumatic event? This has to be wrong, right? Am I causing people to think this by the way that I act? I'm worried that the reason I'm not getting better is because my diagnosis is wrong. But for several people to have come to the same conclusion, there has to be something that I'm doing, which makes me feel crazy. If you have any insight, I'd really, really appreciate it. Thanks for everything. Unfortunately, it does sound like you have PTSD. Now, we could have panic disorder that could have a lot of these same symptoms. You could bring that up and they would want to look into it. But your memory, not having a memory doesn't mean that our nervous system doesn't remember. That's I love the book, The Body Keeps the Score. Um, it's a lot to digest and I don't necessarily recommend you try to read through it all, but I think it's a really helpful resource and something that I do recommend working our way through slowly but we do have cellular memory. Trauma memories really mess with us because we can't recall them and it could be blips. We might have total blackout for years of our lives. No matter how hard we work, those memories just won't come back. Like uh, Alexa had said, when we're dissociated, often our brain can't make any memory. So it's like the memories don't exist, which can be fucking horrible, right? It's so invalidating and helps with that minimization, that shame, guilt, embarrassment cycle we get caught in. But I'm here to tell you that what you're experiencing looks and sounds like PTSD. And you know, the old saying, like, if it looks like a duck and quacks like a duck, it's a duck. I assume it's PTSD. And just because we don't have memory of an event doesn't mean an event didn't take place. And if it's helpful, you could ask people in your life that were around you at the time, you know, to when we think that event happened, if there's anybody who can help fill in the blanks, that can be helpful sometimes too. I talk about this in my book, Traumatized. Like, what do you do if you don't have memory or if your memory is really spotty? Again, having memory or not doesn't make PTSD applicable or not. It's the symptoms that we're looking for. And it looks like PTSD. Um, so, I mean, I guess someone could potentially try to fake it, but why would you want to do that to yourself? Think, just consider for a second, be honest with me. Think of how it's affected you and the ways it's impacted your life. Why would you want that? Any idea? You wouldn't because you wouldn't fake it because people don't fake mental illnesses like that. People can fake being sick. That's called, what is it called? I forget when people fake being sick. Um, Munchausen syndrome. 
And there's also Munchausen by proxy. Anyway, we don't need to get into that. But to me, it sounds like PTSD. I know it's hard. I know you want to minimize and invalidate. Um, but having the memory doesn't isn't necessary. It's the reaction. We have to get our nervous system calmed down. We have to process through what uh, Alexa said. When we don't have those memories, we have to focus on how it's impacting us today. And we have to work on that. How can we soothe that? What are some things that we can do to help us cope with what's coming up? And we can still recover and still be symptom-free. It's just different, right? Everybody's process is different and that's okay. Now there was a comment on this as my question on top of this one is, can traumas after the initial trauma cause new PTSD triggers and make already pre-existing PTSD worse? Short answer, yes. Unfortunately, our trauma response can grow and grow and grow. And if we're traumatized again, it adds on more things to avoid, more things that are triggering, and it just keeps growing like a virus. Um, that's why treatment is important. And, you know, that's why prolonged exposure, like exposure therapy is actually the best treatment for um, trauma by and large, because trauma tells us it's not safe to engage in that or be out in this situation or see people here. And so our world starts to get really small and exposure therapy pushes us out and, you know, makes us do those things, be around, again, not in harmful situations, I'm not saying, but things that might normally be triggering. Exposure therapy pushes us through so that we do it and we realize, oh, it actually wasn't that scary. It wasn't that overwhelming. It was okay. I didn't get hurt, right? Now, there was another one, another comment on this says, I feel you. And maybe as an add-on, is it possible to have dissociative symptoms without having any trauma in the past? Yes, we can dissociate without trauma and we can have trauma without dissociation. Is that clear? They, they can occur together, but they don't always occur together. And so dissociation is really a symptom of our nervous system being overwhelmed and it not being able to stay present. It most commonly connects with PTSD, but not always not always a trauma. Um, we can dissociate because we have really high anxiety uh, because our depression gets really intense. We can have it for a lot of different reasons. It's really just our brain's way of pulling the ripcord from reality to give us a break because we're overwhelmed. Okay. Final question. Question number nine says, hi, everyone. Hello. How does one go about sorting through complex PTSD? I've tried talk therapy, but I struggle to, well, talk. I'll just always be saying I'm fine and I get super flooded with internal anxiety. I go completely blank. Not super helpful. I've looked at alternative therapies, but they make me even more nervous like EMDR, Santray, etc. I don't know where to start and it feels like my therapist is getting flustered. I'm starting to feel like no one can really help me and this massive anxiety is just how my life will always feel. For extra notes, I'm on anxiety meds. I have a great relationship with my therapist, have a history of sexual abuse and my parents were super emotionally abusive. I love my life now, but the anxiety I've accumulated in the first 20 years of my life is spoiling it for me. SOS. I love this question. The truth about this, when we feel stuck in therapy, I cannot encourage you all enough to talk about the stuckness. Don't talk about the fact that like, I'm fine. I get flooded and I can't talk about, talk about the fact you feel stuck. Do you think you could do that? Sometimes like, it's like we're, we're trying to go through the front door and our, our, nervous system is like, nope, it's got like a moat and like a bunch of gates. And it's like, fuck that. You can't get in. So we got to sneak around the back. Sneaking around the back is like saying, hey, I've been trying a bunch of therapy. I, I sense that you're getting flustered. I'm flustered. I can't fucking talk about anything. Shut down. Say I'm fine. Can we do that? Do you think you could get that out or even write this out and give it to your therapist? Because sometimes 
talking about the process in therapy isn't as emotionally charged as talking about the real thing. So let's give that a go. See if that helps. See if it helps lower the anxiety enough that we can talk a little bit. And in some of some situations with my patients, I've had them write on notebooks and hand it to me and hand it back and we talk that way. If you think you can write instead of say it verbally, that might be an option as well. We're going to have to try to find a way to sneak in, right? Because that front door is locked up and we are very shut down and it's protective. It's okay. It might even be helpful for you personally on your own to think about or journal about like why we shut down. Why is it so protective? What are we afraid could happen in therapy? You know, what? just be curious about this anxiety and this shutdown. Why is it happening? Why is it making this so hard? It's so frustrating. Why do we think it's it's happening like this? When did it start? What makes it worse? You know, has it come up in other parts of my life? I'm sure, you know, it has. Um, but being curious about that process instead of the the real ish that we need to talk about can sometimes allow us to get there. Okay. Now there was a comment on this. It says, to add to this, I can't talk to my therapist either. I don't think it's a him problem though, because I struggle with most people. Could there be something else wrong with me? And that's why. It's like my brain shuts off and I go right into my shell like a turtle. I want to move forward, but I'm stuck because I can't open up. Again, it's okay. This is incredibly common. That's why therapists are supposed to be very calming, soothing. We hold space for you, meaning we want you to know that you can dump all your shit and we can handle it. It's okay. That's why our offices are usually like cool, soft, muted colors. There's a lot that we do to try to be unassuming and non-combative and calming so that you feel safe to share. All that being said, a lot of people still don't feel safe to share because we've never shared before. So again, it's okay. Talk to your therapist about it. Tell them that you just keep shutting down. You don't know why. Um, that You know it's a defense mechanism, but it's pissing you off. And let's just talk about that. Again, Not if the door is shut, we don't need to keep trying to bang through it, right? Let's pivot to the side. Let's consider asking them about, you know, talking about this and finding another way in. Because I will tell you, in my experience, there's always another way in. Okay. Thank you all so much for listening and watching. Please review this podcast. Please share. Um, it's so incredibly helpful. You have no idea. Thank you for sending in your questions. Again, we're going back to one themed podcast per month and three just mixed bags. So keep your questions coming. They're always wonderful and great. And thank you for sharing your own thoughts and answering each other's questions. It's lovely and beautiful. I love seeing it every week. Take care of yourselves and I'll see you next Thursday. Bye. You can ask her about your therapist or vent about your work. You can ask her about your self-esteem or why your feelings hurt. You can ask her why breakups suck or why you've hit a plateau. Inquire all those questions you've always wanted to know.